Thank you for tuning into Movie Geeks United. One of our favorite guests, director Joel Schumacher, has passed away at the age of 80. Joel was a sweetheart of a guy. You could ask anyone who worked with him, and you can feel it in the conversations we shared with him over the years. We had two occasions to interview Joel. The first in 2010 for the 25th anniversary of St. Elmo's Fire, and again in October of 2011 for the release of his film, Trespass. Joel's movies hit the zeitgeist on multiple occasions and did a lot to define the style of films of a certain period. Outside of St. Elmo's Fire, he also helmed The Lost Boys, Falling Down, Flawless, Phone Booth, and many more. In honor of his legacy, we're replaying our two conversations with him back to back. Enjoy. I, I grew up um, in a, um, let's see, what can I say? Like, not the highest socioeconomic structure. And one of those neighborhoods that made, you know, the country great. A lot of immigrants, mm-hmm. um, terrific people, you know, definitely working, definitely blue collar and, and working class. And it was great. I, but, the great thing in our neighborhood, because this is going to be so hard for the two of you to even comprehend. I grew up with, before television. I grew up before television. I know it's incomprehensible. but um, And so we had radio, but as you can probably tell from my films, a little bit um, sort of into visual sensations and... Um, and so, uh, you know, comic books, which of course are just like storyboards, really. The comic books and the movies were what I had. And, and um, my mother and I, my father died when I was when I was a little kid. And um, my mother and I lived on the first floor of our building. And we, literally, uh, there was an empty lot where we played baseball. And right at the edge of the empty lot was a huge movie, the back doors of a huge movie palace called the Sunnyside Movies hmm. in Long Island City. And um, I lived very much, because after my father died, my mother was out of work six days a week and three nights a week. And she was a wonderful woman, but she wasn't around. And um, I uh, was like the kid in Cinema Paradiso. I just yeah. lived in the movie theater and just watch movies over and over again. And when I was seven, I saw, I never liked kid movies at all. Um, I don't think I always understood what I was seeing, but I, I always liked noir and much more adult fare. Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course it was a, a great golden era of movies that I, I grew up on, but I saw, which I later, I knew nothing about these things, but I saw Great Expectations when I was seven. And I didn't know about who David Lean was. I didn't even know what directors were. I knew nothing. And I certainly didn't know it was one of the most famous books Charles Dickens wrote. But the first image of the movie is Pip in a graveyard. Right. And so there's this little boy, you know, without a family who is in a graveyard and it was the first visual image I'd ever seen that I'm like, Oh, like, just like me, 
you know, when you relate, with the moment you started relating to things on the screen. And then, of course, he's a young boy with great expectations. So, um, and after that, I, I couldn't sleep a lot. I remember I was, I was haunted by images in the movie, which are still to this day, I mean, these great archetypical images, you know, there's just stunning. And great actors and and the way David Lean shot things. And that had a very visceral effect on me. And very shortly after that, um, no, probably when I was around nine, I, well, I started making up stories. And then... I built, and I don't know where I would have seen this. I must have seen it in a movie. But I went to the library and I got a book on marionettes. And I built a marionette theater. And I, I made my own puppets. And this served two purposes. One, it made me really popular in the neighborhood because I got invited to every birthday party and everything. But... <laughs> But I think I was really trying to make up movies. You know, I would write the story, and I would do the scenery, and I even had a little portable, you know, phonograph where I would put on music when it was necessary. And um, I think I was trying to make movies. Yeah. Because well, I hadn't seen of- theater yet, you know, so... So, yeah, I started with that dream very young. I had no idea this was going to happen. I mean, how could well, I? That's, that's part of what I wanted to to ask you related to the early influences you had, uh, the, the filmmakers that, in, that inspired you once you became conscious that there was a director behind the lens. So I, I suppose David Lean was, was one of them, obviously. Well, of course. You know, then, then I became... You know, as I as I got in my teens and started to really understand, um, you know, then when television came along, we we didn't have one for a long time, but when it did, and, or I was at one of my friends' houses and they had it, um, you know, you knew who Walt Disney was and Alfred Hitchcock because they were on television. Right. Mm-hmm. Weekly, you know, they had a weekly show, and and so they were personas, so you knew that they were making these things. But you know, certainly when I was a kid, I had no idea that I was watching, you know, Elia Kazan and John Huston and John Ford, and you know, on and on and on and on. I mean, it was a, a fantastic Vincent Minnelli and Stanley Donnan and. And, of course, Billy Wilder, mm-hmm. who ultimately became my favorite director. And and also Fritz Lang, and who some people pronounce Wong, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> and, I, I mean, I, you know, Fritz Lang is fine with me. Yeah, and, it's, it's good with us, too. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. fine. And, whatever you, and, whatever you, you know, call them, the movies so, are great. Right, and there were so many more. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, you know, Victor Fleming did Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz, I think, in the same year. Yeah, um, yeah. and no one remembers his name. If you yeah. ever, if you ask anyone, anyone who directed Gone with the Wind, no one knows. Yeah, and um, 
So, you know, of course, these were movies that were, look, the, the 1939 movies were made the year I was born. So, mm-hmm. but they were always replaying them. You know, they would, they would bring in movies to the, there were three movie theaters in our neighborhood. And then, so I was watching some of the great American movies of, you know, this golden era. And, um, and of course, you know, the gods and goddesses of acting that were part of the Hollywood machine, you know, and, and, um, but what happened then was my mother worked in a dress store selling dresses and right near her, there was this tiny little theater called the Center Theater. And I didn't realize it at the time that it was an art house theater. And it was another movie theater I didn't know about. So I went in there and there were foreign films. Mm. And they had subtitles. And of course, it, part of it was the great Italian neorealism, which was also, unlike the Hollywood movies, which were quite glamorous in their own way, even the ones that were trying to be gritty were glamorous. And because it was Hollywood. I was watching, you know, Bicycle Thief and Bellissima and Open City. And those were movies about people who were very real to me. Mm-hmm. And they weren't just magic creatures on the screen in a world that I never thought I could really ever be part of. Right. But, but these were, you know, stories. And what I was watching was Fellini and Zetika and Jean Renoir. And I was watching, you know, Gerard Philippe and Michelle Morgan and, you know, some of the greatest, the Anna Magnani and, you know, some of the greatest European actors. And they also showed Kurosawa, mm-hmm. which I didn't, I didn't know any of these people's names. And I'm sure I was too young to quite understand the subtitles, but it didn't matter. It was just, uh, I still remember the. I can remember sitting in those theaters and the effect that these movies had on me. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure every director you talked to, whatever their time was, would say the same thing to you. And yeah, um, yeah, these were these were major influences. And, and actually, uh, I mean, you're one of the great directors, and the other great directors from your generation. Uh, these were their major influences, too. I mean, yeah. you look at 70s cinema, and that's what you have. Yeah, I mean, it's not only bad. You're the same generation as my mom my mom and dad, and they went to the, they went every day or every weekend to the movies, and especially the art house films. You're talking about the foreign films. Those had a profound effect on their generation because they've never seen anything like that before. When those started I, I, to show, Exactly. And, and it, it was revolutionary. It was yeah. as though, like, the Michelangelo painting, you know, it's like you've never, no one's ever seen anything quite like this before in this country. Yeah, and exactly. it's astounding. They still are. Oh, they, they're timeless. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and Nick Cage and I were just talking about Purcell the other day and Rashomon, and, you know, it's so indelible. We're quoting lines from it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't think both of us have seen it in years and years. But um, just to fast I even forward, copied the music. I, I copied some of the Kurosawa sounds right. in Tigerland because a traditional score didn't work in Tigerland. And so Nathan Larson and I, um, there's very little music in Tigerland, but but uh, um, but what there is is very much. For some reason, even though there are teenagers drafted to go to Vietnam and they're in boot camp, somehow with the swamp and the forest and the woods, and there was something about, you know, all those fabulous Asian sounds. Nathan mm-hmm. found the real musicians who play in the subway, the old Asian men. And if you ever see Tigerland, you'll hear the, this. This totally stolen from Kurosawa. But wow. Um, just to fast forward just a little, a little bit. Um, so you got into what was it? Costume design before you got into directing. Well, I got a scholarship. You know, my main focus was how could I make some money so my mother could stop working. Right. Or didn't have to work as much. Right. And um, so with the urging of some friends, I, I submitted a portfolio to Parsons. And so I got a scholarship to Parsons School of Design. And they put me, they had very, it was a much smaller school, very hard to get in then. Um, had a very famous interior design department and fashion department. And it, so I got a scholarship and they put me in the fashion department. Mm-hmm. And, um, and at the same time, I was working my way through school doing the windows and the interiors of a very, uh, progressive, very hip short called Henry Dandel, which was on 57th Street in those days, and run by a 30-year-old woman president, and which will tell you how, how advanced that, just that she had that job at that time and was yeah. a phenomenal person. And so that store was the center of fashion in Manhattan. Everything else was very, very uh, conservative. And she was ahead of the curve, which was, this was in the early 60s. She was ahead of the curve of what was the explosion that was going to happen, which was happening in Europe, but ultimately would come to the United States. And mm-hmm. so, so that was the center of all the fashion people. And everybody said to me in school and also at the store was, you should get a job in fashion when you got a school job. You should be a designer. In quotes, you will make a lot of money. End quote. Hmm. And that, those words meant to me, I could get my mother out of that apartment. I could do things for her. To, you know, so I did get I did get high paying jobs uh, in fashion. Unfortunately. Um, just as I graduated and that happened, my mother died uh, suddenly. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was, 
And then I was kind of, you know, I was already a drug addict because it was the 60s. And, um, and then I, I didn't like fashion, and I wanted to make movies and ever since I was a kid. And, but Hollywood seemed so far. I mean, it just seemed ridiculous. How was I ever going to work in the movies? And um, so I crashed and burned in the fashion business because of drugs. And also, I really didn't have a burning desire to do it. Mm-hmm. And when I got off hard drugs in 1970, a very close friend who was kind of my first non-druggy friend when I stopped shooting up, and he was the youngest producer of television commercials that Ben and both, and we both had dreams about going to Hollywood and kind of encouraged each other. And he had a very close friend named Dominic Dunn. Dominic Dunn was not a novelist then. He was a producer. And he was doing a film of Joan, Joan Didion is his sister-in-law and John Gregory Dunn was his brother. Right. Um, and... So uh, one of Joan's great books is played as a lady. Right. And they were doing a film. Frank Perry was the director. Tony Perkins and Tuesday Wells were in it. And I met them all and then stalked Dominic Dunn. <laughs> I mean, I, I just wouldn't give up. And I wanted to be a PA. You know, I said I will carry coffee. I would do anything. Right. But I have, because when I got off hard drugs, I thought, okay, my whole life's fucked up. I have to go back to, you know, to zero and start again. And I thought, <laughs> I said to my friends, I'm going to go to Hollywood and become a movie director. <laughs> and they thought I was on drugs again. <laughs> and, and, but I, I, I really need to say that. And then, so here's this chance. Dominic was making a movie in Hollywood with Tony Perkins and Tuesday Weld and, and Frank Perry, and they were going to do this, and I had to be a part of it. So he, he eventually took me in to meet Frank, and the three of us were in the office, and they said, look, we don't need anyone to carry coffee. We have plenty of, there'll be plenty of people in LA to do that. <laughs> what we need is, we need a really quick and cheap costume designer. And because I had, I had a bad rep for professionalism in the fashion business, but a good rep for talent that, uh, I, I said, sure. So I think we made the movie for a million dollars, and it was Dominic who really brought me to Hollywood. And unfortunately, Dominic died last year, but we stayed close friends. And I think he was more happier from, I think he was happier from my success than even I was. He was so proud. And um, I'm glad he got to see that. And So, so, So you also were encouraged a lot by Woody Allen, I understand. Well, yes, because the third or fourth movie I did costumes on was Sleeper. Right. Sleeper. And Woody had a deal with UA in those days 
with Eric Pleskow and Arthur Krim. You know, it's hard for you and your generation to understand. The Hollywood I came out to was very small and very personal. And you knew everybody by first name. And so Eric and Arthur were legendary. And, I mean, I had been watching Woody since I was a busboy in the village mm-hmm. when I was, uh, I think, just before I went to Parsons. Um, and I used to go see Woody do stand-up at the Bone Store. I would save my tips and go see Woody, and, you know, his stand-ups are legendary. Mm, they are. And yeah. I couldn't even believe I was meeting Woody Allen, let mm. alone he hired me. And... Um, we became very close friends, and he has really been a mentor, and we're still, we're still very close friends now. I see him, uh, you know, for dinner a few times a year, and, and uh, let me Let me ask you something. Let, let me ask you something about him. I mean, this is off topic, but... He's the one who told me to start writing. Exactly. But as a film director, does Woody Allen have the most enviable career of any film director? Well, I tell you why I ask because it I seems know, that's that that's a tough question. Well, but for many years he was like a subsidized artist, right? And he could do, for instance, his deal with UA was he could do anything he wanted as long as it cost two million dollars. It was a comedy, and he was in it. Mm-hmm. And yes, that was a phenomenal deal. And I think it allowed. Sorry, I'm on the streets of New York. I'm <laughs> get away from, That's quite get all right. Away from these guys. But he does. Oh, you know, you really know I'm in Manhattan, don't you? Oh, I I love the sound effects. It's yeah, great. we love it. It's, no, it's it's great. It makes for great radio. But it does seem like I've always said that Woody Allen has the greatest job in the history of cinema. Anything that he writes will get financed and made. Yes, I've never asked him if something didn't, but he has written things that I know he's put on the back burner because I remember one of the ideas he was working on and then he decided not to make it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how many of those there are. I've never asked. I will. But um, he's the one who told me to write, and he also told me I would become a director. And I said, oh, you're just saying that because you like me. And he said, he said, no, I would never encourage you if I didn't think you had talent. He also, during the making of Sleeper, he had um, a very bad communication with Dale Hennessy, who was the great production designer, who did a fabulous job on Sleeper for no money. Mm-hmm. But they were such opposite personalities, they just couldn't communicate with each other. And so, you know, uh, Woody encouraged me to sort of help out with some of the sets. And, but I mean, it was Dale's genius, but they just couldn't. And he encouraged me to be, you know, also, you really have to understand, Woody's movies at that time were like the high school plays. I mean, it, it was, everybody had to pitch in. I mean, I cut out the nose out of pink rubber. 
sitting on the nose that he and Diane steal. Right, I was right. sitting on the pavement. That uh, The reason we shot it in Boulder and Denver is because it was very progressive at that time for poured concrete architecture. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that people think are sets in that movie are the real places. And there was the IMK National Atmospheric Research Center, right. which we used as the place where they stole the nose from. And I was sitting in the parking lot cutting out pink noses all day because it was like the high school place. You hold this up, you go get this, you go do that, you cut that out, you, you know, and everybody was encouraged to participate. Yeah, yeah. So it was very exciting because I had gotten, I'd worked for Frank Perry, Herb Ross, mm-hmm. Paul Mazursky, before that, you know, who were very established directors at the time. But they were also, you stayed in your department. Right. You know, you weren't, you weren't asked or encouraged to participate in any way beyond what your job was. And so this was kind of miraculous. And at the mm-hmm. same time, I read an interview with Stanley Kubrick that said, my secret is I steal from everyone on the set. And I thought, well, you know, Woody Allen and Stanley Kubrick, if they're doing that, if I ever got to be a director, that's the way to direct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, of course, by doing that, you know, he got much more out of us than mm-hmm. just Standing in the department, following orders. And exactly. because, you know, you can listen to everybody's suggestions, but you choose which ones you like and don't. So, and I, I tell that a lot to young directors, you know, just listen to everyone and then take your own counsel. But, and I always, I try to tell the cast and crew at our first production meeting, you know, please don't go home and tell your significant other what I should have done today. Because mm-hmm. I've been on those movies as crew where the whole crew sits around and says, if he would just do this and that, it would be <laughs> so much easier. And that director's not open. And so you're afraid to bring that to the table, and I saw the frustration sometimes when life could be simpler and the movie could be better. And I also say there are no stupid ideas. There are only stupid directors. So, you know, even an idea that we don't use might open the discussion to other ideas. And and I'm a big fan of that. And, of course, I'm a very cast-dependent director. And I've had a lot of great cast in all my films who have done a spectacular job. And I really owe them a lot of my rise in the film community. Mm-hmm. Well, it, that, that is your, and I know that you hear it all the time, do you feel that that is your special gift for, for recognizing the potential of the talent that you, that you recruit for your films? I think if any of those, I mean, I think of any of the people uh, in St. Elmo's or I think of Demi Moore walked in your office when she was 20. Mm-hmm. And you had seen a hundred actresses for that role. 
you would say, thank you, God. <laughs> that problem is solved. And, you know, um, a lot of people associate Julia with flatliners. And, uh, I mean, uh, but it was really Gary Marshall that put her in Pretty Woman. Yeah. But Pretty Woman, Pretty Woman wasn't out yet when we made Flatliners. And so um, it came out when we were in Mm post-production. And it certainly didn't hurt. But the reason those things happen, I mean, the reason why some of the people in my movies and other people's movies have become overnight stars, because they brought that in the door. What we might have done is given them the role that let everybody see it. That's all. And you've done it time and, and time I'll again. Take, yeah. That I'll take credit for. <laughs> well, when I started directing, you know, Merrill and Bob Redford were not sitting around going, let's get Joel Schumacher to do Out of Africa, you know. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't because, you know, I was writing stuff and doing stuff at, with a lot of young people unknown and, uh, we didn't know St. Elmo's Fire was going to be successful. Yeah. The studio you did, said you can't open a movie called St. Elmo's Fire. Joel, no one knows what it means. Right. But you, but you actually wrote, I'm glad you brought that up, because you wrote St. Elmo's Fire with uh, Carl Kurlander. He, was he an yes, assistant he was, of yours previously? Pardon me? Say it again. Uh, yeah, uh, he was your assistant previously, and I'm wondering how that collaboration came about this one well he was an intern from duke university he came to work with us on the post-production of dc cab oh i love that movie and i think i think we made it for three million dollars and <laughs> um but it when I was making DC Cab, the, the the parts that we did in DC, I lived in Georgetown, and um, when uh, I would sit outside on the weekends, or and it seemed to me like an entire yuppie city. And you know, this was in the high heyday of Reaganomics. And it's still that way. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm there right now. It's still that way, okay? Don't it hasn't changed. <laughs> well, I I thought I felt sorry for all these kids because I thought this is an era where you have to have a twenty five year plan when you come out of college. This is not the graduate where you can laze around and find yourself. True. Mm-hmm. That's very true. It was, and, you know, I, I was a beneficiary of the 60s. But, you know, kids could come out of college and travel and, like, find out what they wanted to do. Yeah. But especially in that era of the 80s, you know, you sort of had to come out of college to be an instant adult. And I thought that was sad and unfair. And I sort of looked at them... Uh, with a very heavy weight on their shoulders. So Carl, who had become increasingly, you know, part of our little filmmaking family in the, the post-production of DC Cab, you know, I said to him one day, I always had this idea, and Carl, you know, was fresh from college. Mm-hmm. 
So I said, I've, I've had this idea, Carl, when I lived in Georgetown, where there's really nothing been done about graduates since the graduate, and the times have changed so much. And I said, I, w- I want to do a movie about a group of friends who are graduating and kind of how tough it is to be an instant adult. And so out of that, we started talking, and he had worked at a restaurant when he was in college called St. Elmo's, and then he didn't know what St. Elmo's Fire was. No one did. But I thought, gee, why don't we name the bar that? And there's a famous bar in D.C., which escapes me, which generations have gone to. Um, it's down below. It's too small to shoot in, but it's famous around Georgetown, Georgetown University, and fathers and grandfathers went there. So I thought, well, why don't we make up a bar like that that's bigger that we can shoot in and sort of have life happen around St. Elmo's Bar, and then we can call it St. Elmo's Fire. And so that's how it started out. And then, you know, I based it on some people I knew. Carl brought wonderful memories of, especially in the Emilio Estevez, Andy McDowell story, about how foolish his obsession had been with this beautiful girl in college. And, you know, I think that was such a great part of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and and also, I think I started out with this intellectual idea. This is only my third movie. I started out with this intellectual idea that I was going to make a film about self-created drama. Mm-hmm. But, of course, what I really made a film about is can you stay together as, as, a, as a group? As you get older, mm-hmm. whether you ever went to college or not, everyone could, whether it's high school, whether it's your gang on the corner, whether it's whatever you, your camp, whatever you go through in life, the Boy Scouts or whatever, it's when you think that, that you'll be best friends forever. Mm-hmm. And you can't imagine that you could ever not be friends. That's true. And life comes in. And you can stay in touch, and then it starts to be Christmas cards, and then baby pictures, or whatever happened to, or, you know, those stories. And so I think besides how young and talented and beautiful the cast was, um, it struck a nerve. I also had a real, because uh, I did Cinema Fire and uh, Lost Boys back-to-back, yeah, And a part of the philosophy I had was a lot of the youth movies were sort of done like this is a boutique audience and we don't have to spend a lot of production money. You know, we can do, you know, and outside of John Hughes films, they, a lot of the movies were like, you know, the jock, the whore, the good girl, the, you know, they were very, um, they were almost exploitational. And 
Um, so I, what I said to everybody was, why don't we make a movie for young people that's like an A movie? Let's shoot it in scope and let's have, you know, beautiful clothes and great sets and do it like uh, no one's done a youth movie like that. And mm-hmm. and maybe it'll work. We, you know, we have no idea any of this will work. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you about the – it's easy in hindsight to explain this, but this was just a notion at the time. And sometimes you get lucky. And – when there were other movies the studio was going to release that summer and they had had bad research screenings and we were supposed to come out in October at the back to school movie right. and then Guy McElwain who thank God dreamed the movie uh, called me one day and said do you think you could have this movie ready to distribute in three weeks wow, wow that's- and I said oh I'm I don't know, guy. And then I remember I had this phone, and I actually, I don't know who was in the room with me, whether it was Carl or whether it was someone I was living with, or I don't know what. But I said, oh, he didn't just ask me if I could do it. He just told me we're doing it. <laughs> yeah. Gentlemen. Yeah. So we did the post, the album. Wow. Um, David Foster had never scored a movie before. He did that great thing right out of the box. Um a lot of the groups at the time, Kansas, and, and a lot of people, I, I haven't looked at the album lately, so I'm, I'm probably going to forget some great people. But um, they jumped on the album. We did a music video, you know, in a couple of hours <laughs> and, with the cast and clips from the movie. And we opened in June instead of October. So wow. I remember, <laughs> well, we'd had a fantastic research screening. In fact, the studio not only didn't, they didn't want the movie to be called St. Ellis Fire, and I understand that, but um, the studio wanted me to cut Emilio Estevez and Annie McDowell's relationship out of the film because they thought that Emilio's behavior was too embarrassing, hmm. too humiliating. Wow. And when we had our first research screening, which was probably, you know, kids from 18 to 25, when Emilio, in this narcissistic mortification, chases Andy McDowell up into the snow, and he's leaving the next morning in his humiliated, in his, his disheveled black tie, getting in the car. Mm-hmm. And he... The boyfriend grows, goes to get a camera to take their picture, which gets a huge laugh, rightly so. And then they're alone, and Emilio throws her backwards over the car and kisses her insanely. And Andy, this is not scripted. Andy does the greatest thing ever in the movie. She succumbs to it. Mm. They have a great kiss. And half the audience stood up and cheered. Wow. And I remember Guy McElwain leaning over to me at the research screening and said, you know, uh, Joel, the relationship will stay in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know what interests me about, because you're directing 
uh, a movie about young adults, uh, obviously with young adults, uh, with a group of young adults. Did you uh, base any of these characters on observations you made of them? Because they have to be going through some of the same life changes as these characters, as they're playing them. Well, Rob was only 19, and, you know, he was, uh, you know, beautiful and wild and reckless and um, doing some amateur filming himself, which eventually caught up with him. So he was just sort of the... You had to bring uh, that up. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, and Rob was only 19. He was the youngest right. person on the cast. That's true. And, and I didn't want to put him in the movie. And in that part, and he he stalked me, mm. and finally came to my office on a Saturday. Born in the USA, had just come out because I remember I had the album. And Rob came in and said, "I just got that too." And we were doing a Bruce Springsteen, you know, worship. Mm-hmm. And then he just started selling himself like crazy, and I thought, "Why oh, am I punishing this kid?" Because this had gone on for a long time. He wants it. No one will ever want this part as badly as he does. Mm-hmm. And he was a teen heart sub, and I thought, that's right. He was fixing something. Okay. Thank you, David. Panic. I didn't have my key to my apartment, and I couldn't find it. So, um, so, so Rob, yeah, I mean, you know, the parts, if you read the original script of St. Elmo's Fire, it's very much what we shot. Emilio and Denise fell in love. Judd was, uh, well, Judd was from a very prominent family. I think his mother was a judge. Uh-huh. And, you know, he was playing that sort of, that guy. Mm-hmm. Right. That probably would probably be one of our senators or <laughs> congressmen now. Mm-hmm. And had switched parties from the young Democrats to work for a Republican <laughs> because it was better for his career. And... Um, <laughs> Very funny. I don't think I don't think Judge I don't think Judge would have ever done something like that. And um, Mayor, no, Mayor was nothing like her character. Mayor was married with three children, or she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. She thought she was going to lose. She thought she was going to lose the part because she was pregnant. But in the script, we had always made Wendy chubby. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, that really lovely, kind, warm girl who falls in love with the bad boy. Right. You know, that his, her parents wouldn't approve. No one would approve of him. But they had a special relationship. And and it's very sweet at the end, I think. And Mare, Mare is such a fabulous actress Yeah, yeah. that she just made it so believable. And... So I'm not sure. I mean, there was improvisation, of course, and, you know, to me, in party scenes and stuff, you know, did her own thing and at the bar and, you know, but the me didn't need a lot of encouragement, you know. Right, right. And, you know, Allie was just uh, incredible. She was so refreshing and so beautiful and She's just the kind of girl everyone falls in love with in college, mm-hmm. and and she was great. I, I loved her. I thought Allie would become a director. She was so interested in filmmaking 
that she would stand behind the camera and we would let her look through the lens a lot of time and explain what we were doing. So I thought, you know, not only is she one of the great young actresses around, she's going to... Because she did the part in Breakfast Club, which is 180 degrees from... Yeah, completely. You know, Leslie, yeah. Leslie, the part she played. And, um, you know, she's such a fine young actress and will always be a fine actress. And I thought she was going to wind up as a director. Because I think she'd be great. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let me. Uh, you've you've given us so much of your time, and I, I really appreciate it. I, I, I let me just ask you one more question about Sam. Oh, a lot. I know. No, you're terrific. It's the no, best. It's one of the best interviews. Very informative. Very. This is um, awesome. When you're approached about the film uh, from from fans and so forth, what do you think the legacy of that movie is? What do you think it means to? I don't know, because. You know, you don't make movies for yourself. And I'm very fortunate that I've made so many films, and they're on television all the time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when I come home late at night and I turn on the TV, there's one of my films on. Like a while ago, I came home and A Time to Kill was on. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like a home movie and what you're thinking of is, oh, this is the day that that happened and oh, this is the time when we thought we wouldn't get this scene because it started raining and oh God, we're, then you think, oh God, is Sandra Bullock beautiful. And then <laughs> this is the scene where I told Matthew to take the cigar out of his mouth and oh my God, is Matthew beautiful. You know, and then um, this is the scene that a lot of men have talked about where Ashley Judd is sitting on the floor painting it, dripping in sweat, and her skirt is yanked up pretty far. And, uh, and um, you know, oh, that was the thing when I told Ashley to pull her skirt up, and God, isn't Ashley beautiful? You know, there's a lot of, a lot of that that goes on. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's sort of not, you know, you make them for other people. Right. And it's very hard to understand what effect, because you know what? Every filmmaker works their ass off on every film, mm-hmm. the hits and the misses. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you get lucky and you hit the zeitgeist. You know, maybe if they had held St. Mellon's Rice in October, it wouldn't have been a hit. You know, who knows? You just don't know. And sometimes you're just at the right place at the right time with the right movie. Yeah. And, you know, I've been lucky that that's happened several times in my career, and I hope it hasn't stopped. But, you know, um, phone booths. You know, we made phone booths in 12 days with an unknown Irish actor. Right. And, and you know, who knew? For $1.98. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, you know, we all knew that this is a movie that could go right to the shelf. Or we didn't know if we could make it in 12 days. We didn't know anything. I mean, we were just thinking, I think we can. You know, you're always like the little engine, even when you're making the big It's It's harder with the great big films, with the big budgets, because, right. of course, uh, and in all fairness, 
the studio expects you to make a huge the more money they spend, the more they want in profit. And that's fair. And when they do a movie like Phone Booth, they want to make a very small gamble. And that's fair. So I've done them all. You know, I've done medium budgets, big budgets, teeny weeny budgets. And, you know, you learn, it's different muscles. You just learn um, different things from every movie you've, you've worked on. Well, you've you've made you've made a lot of films that that mean a lot to us, and yeah. I just got to tell you, or else my friend is going to kill me. Uh, one of my close friends, she wanted me to tell you that Cousins is her all-time favorite film. Uh, oh, tell her she is a true romantic. I yes. think it's the only I think it's the only truly romantic film I made, except Phantom. But Phantom is really over the top romance. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. theatrical, theatrical romance. Right. Cousins is very much about two very, very extraordinary, ordinary people mm-hmm. and their families and 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 God wasn't Isabella beautiful. She still is. Yeah. You know, whenever yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see that film, <laughs> Nafa. For I, I I hired her because I gave her the part because I thought there's no man in the world that wouldn't fall in love with this woman. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and women always like her too, which is you don't always get that. And um, I remember Isabella saying to me because she hadn't done a lot of acting yet, and she she had been a very successful model and still was. And um, she had done Blue Velvet and took a lot of shit for it. But as you know, it's not only a genius movie; it she was brilliant and very brave. Mm-hmm. And right, right. and um, she said to me one day, we were talking about the scene we were going to do, and she said, "You know, Joel, my mother, which of course you know is Ingrid Bergman, mm-hmm. um, said to me when I started to act that when in doubt, do nothing. They'll take care of it with the lights and the music." And mm-hmm. I said. That will work if you look like Ingrid Bergman and Isabella Rossellini. <laughs> if I was on camera, I would have to work my ass off. No. You know, and I said, and your mother certainly didn't do nothing ever. Right. Right. And, <laughs> and so that was very funny, I thought. Let, let me tell you that I, I would love to have you back on because there's a lot of movies that, that yeah, flawless. Uh, Veronica Guerin. I mean, it goes on and on and on yes, that we'd uh, love to talk to you about. Be my pleasure. I think they should. I think they should release Falling Down again. I think it's even more. It's even oh, more. It's, yeah, it's, it's more relevant it's now than ever. I mean, I've been my God. for years now. Yeah. You know, and um, yeah. Well, we can talk about all of them. You know, even the ones that where I didn't do my best job. I mean, that's fine with me. You learn a lot from those, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. You, what, what's coming up for you? I know that you, you're, you're busy. You had 12, yeah, 12. premiere 12. at Sundance. 12 is coming out July 2nd, and oh. it's, uh, another, it's another young cast. It's from Nick McDonald's very controversial bestseller that's right. of the yeah. same name, which he wrote when he was 17. And it's... Um, Really beautiful, talented people mm. acting bad. Right. right. 
<laughs> and it's really uh, it's it's a sliver of what's going on and all. It, it happens to be privileged kids on the Upper East Side because that's what Nick grew up in and that's right. what he wrote about. But right. it's happening everywhere. It's just you know young people who again know too much too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, all their idols are badly behaved and get more famous for being, you know, badly behaved than they do for good. Mm-hmm. And materialism over real values. And, you know, the worst part is uh, the kind of um, recognition today is more important than accomplishment. True. Right. That's right. very true. So... It doesn't matter what you're famous for. You're just famous. Right. Mm-hmm. Like all the reality shows where people are, have uh, displayed despicable behavior, but they're famous. Mm-hmm. And they go on red carpets and they get free handbags and, you know, they get designer gowns and clothes and, you know, and, and so... And with all the scandals all the time, with sports people, with politicians, with movie stars, with, you know, everybody, it's, we sort of ex- accepted that behavior as the norm. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's really not shocking anymore. It's not shocking because we just, but we just have the, but the camera's on all the time now. Yeah. Well, when you, when you look at something good, I mean, part of that I really like. I mean, I like, that they can, yeah, I like that they have surveillance cameras and when some woman is raped or someone is mugged or killed that they've got this tape they can run on television constantly so that maybe someone will catch this person. Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, I think a lot of being on camera all the time is very healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, though, if you're going to let people into your private life and then be either encouraged or let loose, to display the worst behavior possible yeah. to an audience, and and it becomes very very successful doing that. That I think it, you know, I think that part of it, as as fun as it might be to watch that, it's. I remember when Anna Nicole Smith, the poor poor Anna Nicole Smith, had that program on. Yeah, I, yeah, and, I remember that. Yeah. And they would, you know, which everybody made fun of, and, you know, she was really, you could tell, stoned and out of it most of the time. You know, they would always cut for a couple of minutes to Danny, the 13-year-old, mm-hmm. and and you would think, what, how, there's a 13-year-old boy in this house, mm-hmm. and his mother's kind of a joke, and... Well, and you see where that all went. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and they and they 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 want to push that image, too. I mean, it's it's like a, a feeding frenzy. It's almost, I think it almost appeals to the worst instincts in all of us. That kind of voyeurism, of course. Yeah, it's like it's really like slowing down to see how really awful the accident is. Yeah. yeah. So then we can say, oh, isn't that terrible? Mm. But we want to see it. Yeah, I yeah. know. But well, we all well, share this. So, 
I don't know. I mean, I sound like an old man now, but anyway. So that's what the movie's about, and there'll be a lot of tongue clucking. There was, you know, Cinema Fire did not get a good review in the United States of America. Not one. They kind of, I wanted to ask you about that, and then I, I promise I'll let you go, because the critical reception of it, it kind of uh, boxed it in as being a, a portrayal of arrogant, e- egotistical kids, and that that's unfair. I'm sure you felt the same way. Well, but that's part of the point of the movie. I yeah. remember people being, the scene where Denis goes to the shelter where Mary's working, wearing these very expensive clothes, and Ali Sheedy is dressed in all this expensive Ralph Lauren. And, you know, there are homeless people there. And, uh, and they're, except for Mayor, they're kind of oblivious to it all. Mm-hmm. And then I was, <laughs> the whole scene and the girls and me were like, oh, my God, look what they've done. They put these, well, that's the point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Mike Nichols said they always confuse content with intent. Mm-hmm. Right. That's very true. Um, yeah. And so that will happen on this movie, too, because it shows really bad behavior, and it'll seem like I'm promoting that. So it can't be. But this movie, Roger Ebert really got, and he wrote, a very fair and brilliant review of it. So, you know, I think it's, it certainly won't be like St. Elmo's where I think it's, that was really, there are critics now that interview me and tell me, you know, Joel, my favorite movie you ever made is St. Elmo's Fire. And I said, no, you hated it. No, I loved it. So go back and find your review. You hated this movie. Right. But I love that. I mean, fine. You know, I didn't have a problem when they hated it, and they don't have a problem that they love it. I'm happy they do. It, it means but, that your um, movie has lived, and that's yeah. that's the greatest compliment for a yeah, filmmaker. Well, you just ha- hope to have a few of those in your lifetime, you know, and then you always have to live by hoping you haven't made your best film yet or else you should quit. Mm. Yeah. Well, so, I cannot I cannot wait to see 12. In, yeah, likewise. Anytime you can come back, I hope you like it. Yeah, please come back. I hope you like it. we got a lot to talk about still. Um Thanks. You guys are fantastic. Thank you so much for spending this time. I hope I didn't talk too much. But not at all. Please, not at all. Uh, please, uh, we can talk even when we're not like doing an interview. So you guys are great, and I want to know all about you, too. So oh, please ke- keep in touch. And thank you very much for your attention on me. The director of the new film, Trespass, and so many other great movies. Uh, Flawless, Falling Down, A Time to Kill, Lost Boys, Flatliners. On and on and on, uh, eight millimeter. Uh, this is a great conversation about the the future of movies, movie distribution, uh, content of movies, and Schumacher talks about his biggest successes and uh, and some some movies that he considers that might have been compromised along the way, and some great insider stuff on uh, a lot of his highest profile titles. And he told he told us at the very beginning of the interview, he said. Uh, Based on the last interview that we did with him, he said, uh, "This is my favorite movie ever." Or this is my favorite interview ever. Oh, okay, cool, cool. <laughs> favorite movie ever. No, and I have the proof to it. You want to? You want to hear the proof? Yeah, the proof. I, I, I believe it. All right, here it is. This is one of my favorite interviews ever. He said it. There it is. <laughs> cool, okay. awesome. We love you, Joel. We do love you, Joel. 
Here is uh, Joel Schumacher. The movie Trespass, his new film with Nicole Kidman and Nicolas Cage, is now open in select cities, I think nine major cities across the country, and it's also available on video-on-demand services. Here's Joel. You're days away from this movie being unleashed upon the public. <laughs> yes, uh, unleashed and, is a good word. <laughs> <laughs> and you've nurtured it this far. How does it feel? Does this feel like the finish line for you? With this film? Um, well, you know, one of the uh, things, you know, um, you know, I've been into actors before you were born. One of the things that happens very, very early on, and it, it's, I did two TV movies before I did my first feature, and worked on many other, you know, director's films, uh, you know, doing costumes. And I'm sure you know I started at 200 bucks a week in the co- uh, doing costumes mm-hmm. on an independent movie, dreaming to be a director. So how it happened, I don't know. But it sure did happen, and much bigger than my dream. But the first thing you learn on your first television movie is, it's only your movie when you're making it. It is really what is considered, and this doesn't matter how artistic a film is, it's a product for a company and a corporation that expects to make money. Right. And, you know, no matter how prestigious a film may be, you know, it's a business. They want to make money. And... um you know, no matter how much rope they give us and how much they say we want you to do something completely different, at the end of the day, they would love Star Wars. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. <laughs> but but um, so <laughs> the hard part is it's like I would assume it's like when people raise other people's children. And, but eventually, there comes a time where you have to give the child back to, you know, where where the where it comes from, right? Right. So, so you learn early on it's only your movie when you're making it, and then once it's finished or you're finishing it, it really belongs to the studio or the financiers or. Whoever has put the money up for the film, and sure. you have to learn, you know, separation anxiety, and you have to realize you really made this to give it away. And then, of course, there's always the, what if everybody hates it? What if it, you know, doesn't find an audience? Whether I'm sure every director goes to that. Um, I mean, there's certain movies you do and you expect, you know, you do a Batman movie, you expect people to come to it. Mm-hmm. You know, you do a Grisham movie, you expect some people are going to come to it. And But a lot of my movies were surprise successes. And so you never know what's going to happen. And this is a tough movie for people. And I don't know. I really think success, with film, I can't speak to other industries, is really being in the right place at the right time with the right movie. Right, right. But the, but the thing has to be the joy of it is in the actual doing of it. Yes. Uh, so, yes. So, the, so the thing that's great is making movies. That right. is, you're absolutely right. That is 
for me the greatest job in the world. But most but, of the job, most of the job yes. entails doing everything but making movies, trying to set it up, trying to yes. work it out. And it's gotten harder and harder. I mean, yeah. even in the big studio franchises, maybe even worse there because it's so um, everyone's afraid now. Hmm. And I think when you're doing the hundred, two hundred million dollar movies, of course, they're even more hysterical. And but here's here's another new thing with with this film, um, and, and it's a recent kind of phenomenon in the past year, two years, in that it's releasing uh, simultaneously in in select theaters and at your home through on demand, correct? Well, yeah, and you know um, when I first heard about that, I thought, is that a bad thing? And then I noticed. Now I notice commercials, and a lot of movies are doing that. Yeah. And some of them are going on a week ahead of time Mm. on, you know, pay-per-view or video on demand or Netflix. They're purposely going ahead. And um, that's, look, that's where we're all going, and everybody knows it. You know, uh, you certainly don't want to film like Batman or Phantom of the Opera or, you know, well, no director wants any film <laughs> except the way, the way they made it shown in a perfect theater with perfect sound. A couple of years ago, we spoke to Paul Schrader, and he was talking about the future of films. And he said that he believes that the actually going to the theater will be reserved for the theme park movies, you know, the, the big event films. Yes, you wouldn't want to see, although if that's the only way you can see it, I mean, I would have not liked to have seen Avatar without 3D and IMAX. Mm -hmm. Myself. Because I also know that's the way Jim wanted us all to see it. But if people are living where there is no IMAX theater, there may not even be a 3D theater. Mm -hmm. And the only way they can get it is to order it uh, you know, or pick it up at Blockbuster, or if that's still around, or get it from Netflix. Well, so be it. I mean, you want them to watch it. I always said to Andrew Lloyd Webber, let's not make fans of it, because he was always worried about the fans of the show being disappointed. And of course, who wouldn't they? But I said, but why don't we make this to the people who could never, ever, get to a theater, couldn't afford it, don't live anywhere in the world where they're even near it, have mm-hmm. heard about it, love the music, are interested in the story, let's make it for them. Yes, when you see Phantom in the Sigfeld Theater in New York, wow, yeah, with the perfect That's... sound and the perfect picture, it's, look, you're having the experience that we wanted you to have, hopefully. Yeah, but if, if people are going to see it on their, if they eventually watch it on their cell phone, it, I made it for people to watch it, mm-hmm. and I know there are a lot of people that are very angry, a lot of directors and actors that are very angered with the future. I've just been around so long, and I, you can't ever stop the tide. No, yeah, you're right. You know, uh, this is a dubious achievement, but a friend of mine who lives in Shanghai 
called me this summer, and Shanghai is just so corrupt in China that they don't list the top ten films of the month. They list the top ten pirated films. Wow. This is not a joke. And whether he exaggerated this or not, I don't know, but he's in the film business. He's not too, He's a very serious businessman. He called me and said, all right, 12 went to Sunday and got bought right away. And the people who bought it had no money to market it or open it. So it was really a tree that fell down in the forest and no one heard it. And he said, uh, 12 is the number one most pirated film in the month of May in China. Oh. And you know what I thought? Well, we made it for people to see it. <laughs> That's a lot of people seeing our movies. Yeah, that is true. Which is really why you made them, you know. And, you know, I always thought, I hate sports metaphors, and I'm going to do one. You know, in a way, I've always felt like the guy with the football who's got to, you know, manipulate and run around the studios, the uh, managers and agents, the, although they can be very helpful sometimes, and so can your producers, but then you have to get through the critics, and now all the haters are the blog, which no one seems to get out of this alive, and you know, get into the stand and deliver the football, which is your movie, for them. Yeah. Like, this is for you. I've been pretty lucky in my career that people have seen so many of my films. And I think all these avenues that are open to people, like Netflix, like DVDs, Thailand got no release at Fox because Mr. Murdoch felt the film was anti-American and anti-war. Mm-hmm. Now, the truth was it was anti-the draft. But he's the boss, and those are his views. So no one saw it except in Toronto where the critics discovered it. And then it was DVD that made Tigerland and also made Colonist Star. Yeah. So there was no DVD. That definitely would be a movie that no one had ever heard of. Well, and I, I and I recall going to the theater opening weekend to see Flawless, uh, which I think is just a beautiful film. Exactly. And and I'm thinking today, would that movie play in a theater in my area? Uh, but then again, it might be, be it might be better for a movie of that type to be available in everyone's home on on the day of release, more people are likely to see it. Yes, and then, you know, and maybe... It's also a very intimate film, like Trespasses. So, you know, it really does not need... Although um, Trespasses shot beautifully by Andrei Barkoviak in scope. Right. So, you know, you always want a scope movie to be shown in a theater. But... It's an intimate film, and I think sometimes small films are enhanced by the smaller screen. Also, I'm I'm just always going ahead. I mean, I can, you can't look back, and I'm always telling young people, 
things weren't better. They were just different. This is their time, and in the movie business, this is our time. And as you say, or as Paul Schrader said, yes, the, the big franchises, of course we want to see them on the big screen. But I'm sure if you looked at the numbers on the DVDs, that, you know, so Flawless got no real distribution because um, Franklin, who's a senior, who we made the movie for, and was a great friend and fan of the film, and had greenlit it, and allowed me to get Phil Schumer Hoffman his really big first starring role. Yeah. Um, he was replaced at the last second by a man named Alex Nabajigian, who had run casinos for Tricordian mm. in um, Las Vegas. And knew nothing, A, knew nothing about film, and B, was a, I don't even know what the word is, but a fanatical homophobe. Mm. And hated the movie so much that I, I'm glad it opened this theater near you. I don't know where the hell the thing opened. Mm. But it was DVD that made that movie. Yes. And I'm always discovering great movies on DVD. You know, you you tell you tell me these stories about the the kind of the perils of of getting your baby made and then trying to protect it after it's after it's made. But uh, and you've had you've had great successes, and then you've had some films that uh, that I think you've admitted that have been compromised in this process. So hopefully not many. You just right, right. But and the ones that I really compromised the most on were Batman and Robin, as everyone knows. But I take full responsibility. I mean, people didn't hold guns to my head. You know, I mean, at all. It was there was a it was a job. Um, we had been so successful with Batman Forever that everybody wanted a sequel right away, and you know, sequels with rare exceptions, are just made for one reason, box office. Mm -hmm. And then, because Batman Forever was a very unexpected success, everybody climbed on it. It was my job to do the best with it, and I still didn't do the best with it, and I think I never got on my ass in the seat right, and it's all my fault. I think dying young, although I'm very proud of... Julia Roberts and, and uh, Campbell Scott in it. I think they did a wonderful job. And Vincent D'Onofrio and Colleen Dewhurst. But I really think if... I just finished Flatliners with Julia. Mm -hmm. And I was so in love with her, as everybody was. And we'd had such a wonderful working and personal relationship. And... She asked, I was, supposed to, I was going off to Europe to do Phantom of the Opera originally. This is like in 98. Um, sorry, 88 or 89 or something. And that got canceled because of the divorce. A Andrew had decided to divorce Sarah Brightman, and the rights to the show got all tied up in the legal issues. So it took a few years to iron all that out. But... Julia called me and said, if you're not going to do Phantom, 
I'm going to do this little movie. And, and Joe Roth, I think, was on the phone call with her. He was running Fox for Barry Diller. And, you know, I don't think I would have taken the movie if one of the other actresses at that time had asked me. Because it's mm-hmm. really not my kind of movie. And so uh, I know a lot of people love it. I know it has a big cult following. And once they changed the name in Europe to Choice of Love and all over South America, you know, of course, it did much better than the shit. Good luck opening a movie called Dying Young. And <laughs> there's, a, there's a chug tapper. And, um, but, I, I mean, I'm proud of them, and I think I did my best, but I know in my heart of hearts I would not have done that movie if another actress had asked me to do it. Mm-hmm. Because it's not really, it's really not in my blood, right. that kind of movie. And Julie and I saw it as a very, very, very veiled metaphor for AIDS. And we had friends, both of us, who were dying of AIDS. And you couldn't make an AIDS movie then. And, you know, and I'm sure no one else read that into it. But, but in our minds... We sort of saw it that way. So I mean, you know. Did so when you look when you look at Trespass, I, I'm so curious about the process of putting a film together and how the director views the final product, which is what you've been discussing with me today. When when you look at Trespass at the beginning of this process, your dreams for this film, how do they compare with your final cut of the film? Does anything about the final cut surprise you from your initial kind of visions of of trust? Well, it always was, hopefully, from the minute that the, you know, marauders break into the house, that I was hoping to keep everybody on the edge of their seat with what's happening on screen, with secrets and lies that are revealed, to just keep them in the motor of the movie mm-hmm. from the minute they break in till the minute it ends. And because I think that's what a good thriller should do. Mm-hmm. And I've had luck with some, with some successful thrillers. And especially this one, like Thailand, once the fuse is lit, it's lit. And then it's what's going to happen to people in 90 minutes. Um, and I hope I achieve that. I I like to make. Do you think people who ride motorcycles really think they're hot shit? <laughs> I guess so. The <laughs> noisy little buggers. And um, no, don't say that. I'll get like the hate mail of all time from motorcycles. And also, that I've used them. I've used them very successfully in Lost Boys. So I have yeah. great. I have great homage to the motorcycle. It's just the noise in the city is funny. No, but, I just love that. I just love that the two times I've had the opportunity to talk to you, there's this great New York ambiance in the background. It's just yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Well, I am such a street kid and always will be, even though I'm 100 years old. You know, I'm on, I'm at home when I'm on the street mm. and in the subway. I've had many other privileges in my life, but this is really my strength. And but working in the thriller genre, 
uh, I would think that you'd have to be, it would be a very careful calibration of, of tension, uh, where to ratchet up the tension and, and, and so forth. You, you really got to orchestrate that. And then that. when to cool it. Yeah, yeah. And get a little introspective and then just, you know, hit you hard again. Mm-hmm. Um, because if they're not peace and valley, also in falling down and lost boys and flatliners and um, phone booths and eight millimeter, some of my darker words. Mm-hmm. I've always tried to infuse a lot of dark comedy in it. And I tried to do that in this movie to give people a little bit of a relief because I think some of the things that happen on a set are very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, a case in one case would be when Dash Mihawk gets a phone call from Mr. Big, if you will, and then in the middle of all this shitstorm, it says, I don't know. How are things going, Elias? And, you know, we're all supposed to laugh at that because how's it going? And he says it very sarcastically and ironically. Mm-hmm. It's funny. You know, how are things going? It's like it's like a nightmare for all of them. And I, I also saw the movie, you know, definitely in class warfare, but very much, and, and you know, I, I, I don't mean to get anything to like douchebag pretensions here, but but um, I always saw Ben Mendelsohn's family and Nick and Nick's family mm-hmm. as two sides of the same coin. Basically, in the world we live in right now, there are two men who have way overreached to have the American dream. Mm-hmm basically with their families in mind. And, you know, Nick tried to do it the legal way, and, of course, Ben tried to do it the illegal way. Um, But they're both overextended. And, you know, there is that moment where Nick says to Ben, we're not the only hostages here. So they're both in a pressure cooker. You know, because they try to make really different films, um, I'm always, you know, one of the things you get asked a lot is, well, what is a Jolson Rocker film? And I, you know, they're all so different, so, and I said, well, and I can't figure it out myself. I just like to do something different. But I noticed that I do make movies about very, very flawed people mm-hmm. and then put them in a pressure cooker and see who can rise to it and who falls to it. And I didn't do that on purpose. But if I look at my films, starting, well, certainly with DC Cab, but definitely with St. Ellen's Fire and Lost Soul, I mean, right. very flawed people. But, well, I think it, we, but I think we all are. I, yes, and, and, and that makes for good drama. I mean, that's just an essential element of, of good well, character drama. So t- sure anymore because it does seem um, I think there's a trend right now for to go back to 
black hat, white hat. Mm. Like, you know, who's all good, who's all bad, like the cowboy movies. Mm-hmm. And and also that maybe the audience sees something that at the end is heartwarming and uplifting. And I think my a lot of my films have elements of that, but they're not... Nobody's quite walking into the sunset ever. And, right. And... Um, but I think they have just endings. And then, you know, working with the actors, as you know, when the movie begins, you have three people living three totally separate lives mm-hmm. that are not connecting at all. And and they have all these problems and all these secrets and lies and fears. And uh, Nick, of course, is hiding an enormous amount. And all of that means nothing when you're when your family when you're talking about a life and death situation. Yeah. So you mentioned the 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 kind of the good the good white hat the black hat you know the cut and dry good and bad, but you made two films I'm thinking of in particular that would have fit in perfectly during my favorite decade of films where things were a lot more gray. Less black and white, and that was the seventies. Uh, eight millimeter. I remember. And, yes, and I remember when uh, we were making eight millimeter. Nick said to me, after a couple of days of filming, he said, "Oh, I get it. We're making a seventies movie," mm. which I thought was a very high compliment. But I want to assure you that these movies would not get made today. Yeah. Falling down, eight millimeter phone booth, unless it had a huge star in it. Certainly not with an unknown. Um, Flatliners, although they're remaking it, but they wouldn't be remaking it if it wasn't a success. And and then the great movies of the 70s, like Taxi Driver, Mm. if you think about those movies, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, imagine trying to pitch that movie in a meeting. Well, he's this kind of wacky guy, and they put him in the mental institution, and there's a lot of great guys there, and it's sort of fun, and there's a really evil nurse, and he eventually has a lobotomy, and then his best friend, who's an Indian, smothers him to death. Mm-hmm. It's a summer <laughs> movie. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, that wouldn't get made today. How about this yeah. one? A guy holds up the bank and basically the whole city of New York to get money for his boyfriend to have a sex change operation. Mm. One of the great movies. Oh, I God. know. I don't know if a lot of Lumet movies would be made now. I don't think and, so either. And some of the, you know, the great Scorsese movies of the time and Brian De Palma and, mm. you know, Paul Schrader, and, you know, we could go on and on and on and on. But and do, you think, do you think if a movie like A Falling Down was released in that period of film, the 70s, do you think people would get it uh, more than they got it when it was really... I mean, it was very popular, but do you think that people took, took it the right message from it? It was split. 
right down the middle with critics. I don't know what messages I get from my people. I know it made the cover of Newsweek as the that Michael was the poster boy for the vanishing white American male. Mm. And and I looking back on it now, I realize he was really the first tea partier. Mm. Like, you know, I'm out of a job. Who are these people in my country that I don't know? And where's my gun? Hi, can I help you? Yes, I'd like a ham and cheese wamlet or wham fries. I'm sorry, we stopped serving breakfast, but we are on the lunch menu now. I want breakfast. Well, you can't have it. We're not serving it. Oh, you said. Is that the manager? Yeah. Could I speak to him, please? Sure. Rick, there's a customer that would like to speak with you. Yes, sir. Hi, I'd like some breakfast. We stopped serving breakfast. I know you stopped serving breakfast, Rick. Sheila told me you stopped serving breakfast. Why am I calling you by your first names? I don't even know who you are. I still call my boss Mr. I worked for him for seven and a half years, but I walk in here all of a sudden, total stranger. I'm calling you Rick and Sheila like we're in some kind of AA meeting. I don't want to be your buddy, Rick. I just want a little breakfast. Well, you can call me Miss Wilson if you want to. Sheila, we stopped serving breakfast at 11.30. Rick, have you ever heard the expression, the customer is always right? Yeah. Yeah, well, here I am, the customer. That's not our policy. You have to order something from the lunch menu. I don't want lunch. I want breakfast. Yeah, well, hey, I'm really sorry. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm really sorry, too. Get organized! Come on down. Just calm down, everybody. Sit down. Sit down over there. There's no doubt that a lot of people see his journey as a heroic one. And and, and that's... I know. Yeah. I know. It's just very strange to Michael and me. But... Whenever I get get asked if he's the good guy or the bad guy, I always say yes. Mm-hmm. And no one expected people to identify with it so strongly. And, in fact, our first research screening was in Santa Monica. The head of marketing predicted we would probably have 100 walkouts beginning when Michael started bashing the Korean grocery store that Michael Paul Chen was the owner of. Mm-hmm. And they cheered, which was scarier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then then the more he did, the more cheering there was. And But this is ultimately a man who has, has chosen in a psychotic break to be a total anarchist and, you know, it's not even vigilante violence. It's just, you know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take yes. it. Yes, yes, um, and, yes. And, you know, it kills him. I mean, he eventually turns out to be a man who's standing at the edge of the pier with a loaded gun on his wife and child, ex-wife and child. Well, there's nothing heroic about that. Mm-hmm. Not at all. You know, 
I think she's living out some fun fantasies during the film. Yeah. And that people go, yeah, I'd love to do that. But in the long run, it's it's a tragic tale of the, you know, I wanted to make a movie about the kind of guys people see on the street and think they're nice to their mother and walk their dog and have always been very pleasant. And then to turn up one day and shoot people at McDonald's yeah. or in the post office. And then the neighbors are on television saying, you know, oh, he was such a quiet guy. And he always said good morning. And he was so nice to his mother. And we never expected it. Mm. And then it's also the question, if you take an Uzi out, at McDonald's to demand what you want, well, is then, if you don't get it, you shoot? I mean, yeah. what does that mean? <laughs> if you have a loaded gun and say, I want this now, and then you whip, he whips that Uzi right out of that army bag or the bag that the, um, the gang who tried to kill him mm-hmm. has when their car wrecks and he picks up the bag with public. The, the violence keeps escalating every second. But it is very funny, too. Well, I haven't always been the greatest darling. And, it, you know, uh, actually, Falling Down is a great example because half of the critics and the media in the world thought I should be executed. Uh-huh. And then the other half thought it was genius, <laughs> which is not me alone, believe me. It was a great script with a great cast. And... And a great cinematographer. So that's kind of fun, actually, because it actually became a big political story on all the morning news shows, on all the night news shows, about the controversy. And it became cartoons in the New Yorker and uh, all over England. And, mm-hmm. and that was kind of fun to hit the zeitgeist in a way like that because it was very unexpected. And... You know, the studio was very nervous about the film, and of course they should have been. Uh, Michael Douglas and I, and the cast, being bleeding heart liberals, okay, we were accused by Karen James in the Times of being fascist Republicans. (laughs) Because that's what the message was. And, And... In France, yes, I was considered, you know, a fascist right-wing conservative. (laughs) (laughs) But it also made the movie very popular in France. And, yes, well, they always see things very, very, very politically in, in France. I mean, Lost Boys was the first film that I did a press junket all over the world. And to our favor the most important French newspapers like Le Figaro and, I mean, the big-time big guys, um, saw it as an indictment of... This is very interesting. Um, Edward Herman's part as the head vampire was mm-hmm. seen as the big people in the world who corrupt and exploit the little people. And that the whole 
film was a metaphor of that political statement, which I would like to take credit for, but it was not my intention. In fact, it's always interesting to talk about my past work because no one knew Lost Boys was going to be Lost Boys. Right. They really didn't. The studio kept saying to me, is this a comedy or a horror movie, Joel? And I kept saying, yes. And they kept saying, it won't work. And I said, but it looks pretty good in the Dale doesn't it? <laughs> and, and we got lucky. I have to say success is luck. Yeah. There's a lot of luck in it, too, you know. And, and so I've been lucky a lot of the times, and I'm lucky some of the times. But, but who in life cannot say that? I made well, 26 movies. I didn't know if I'd ever make one in my entire life. And I do know that my success along the way has angered certain people, enraged them. And I guess they were hoping to stop me in some way by their outrage. But, you know, whenever I get an opportunity to speak to them, it's just very simple. If I knew I was going to be this successful, I would have been born more talented. <laughs> Someone, a journalist last week, accused me of being, that my movies are pop. I said, do you realize you're speaking to the man who wrote Car Wash <laughs> and GC Cab? And, you know, then I went through my movies and I said, where was my little Italian art house film? Because I missed that era. Hmm. I said, two Batmans and two Grishams? This is pop culture. Mm-hmm. 